Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. This podcast is the second in the series, Remarks on Freud. Now, it is some time uh, since we published the first in this series. In fact, it was on the 29th of June of this year. If you didn't catch that first episode, it's probably a good idea to to go back and, and give it a listen. And uh, then uh, what follows in this podcast will make a bit more sense. It is going to take some time to complete this series, which I imagine will run to four or five episodes, possibly even more. Uh, I certainly don't want to rush it, and I want to be fastidious with regard to the content, so I ask you to bear with me a little. I do think that this is a particularly significant investigation, at least with regard to three understandings that we need to arrive at. Firstly, we need to attempt to understand how propaganda works across society. Secondly, we need to understand and elaborate the basic insight that we are not masters in our own house, that there is more than one centre of will in the adult psyche and across many different cultures. Thirdly, we urgently need to arrive at a practical understanding of the fascist irrationalism, which is on the rise in many parts of the world. None of this is to say we won't encounter philosophical difficulties with Freudian psychoanalysis, especially as we deliberately uh, seek out such difficulties, tensions, contradictions and so on, in keeping with uh, our sceptical and questioning methodology. So, in the expectation that questioning will have a a fruitful and refining result, I want to look at a short uh, text of Freud's, a light text, which purports to give us a model of the human psyche. The text in question is called The Dissection of the Psychical Personality, and it's uh, Lecture 31 from a volume called New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis and it's actually the second volume of this collection of lectures. The lectures are dated, uh, let me have a look, 1932-33 and a footnote to the particular lecture, lecture 31, says that the material or much of the material is derived Uh, with some amplification from chapters 1, 2, 3 and 4 of The Ego and the Id, which was published in 1923. So this is middle period Freud coming up towards late period, I suppose you might say. Let's dive into the actual text then. Firstly, note the title. The Dissection of the Psychical Personality. What we need to be aware of here is that Freud is using a metaphor. He's likening the human personality to the human body. Uh, And in so doing, he's saying that the, the psyche or the psychical personality is something which can be dissected, uh, much in the manner that uh, a cadaver might be dissected by medical students in order to discover directly the structures of the human body. 
We should note that Freud himself started out his career in medicine dissecting uh, brains to look for uh, lesions in the brain and changes in the brain associated with uh, mental illness and uh, dementia. So Freud is talking about the human personality in terms of structures, entities, places. It's sometimes called the topographical metaphor. He did, over his career, use other models or other metaphors, uh, notably the hydraulic metaphor, which was more concerned with the circulation of energies. Perhaps that was a more process-orientated way of, of modelling the psyche, or if you like, the personality. Now, I'll just tell you at the outset that this essay regards the human personality as being a tripartite structure with three substructures, you might say, uh, which relate to each other and interact with each other as the components of the human psyche. The three components, the three structures are the ego, with which we are familiar, that is the sense of being a conscious, separate individual, an I, something with a sense of I, something with a sense of identity. Uh, the second one, Freud called the superego, and this is roughly equivalent to what we call conscience. It's the moral agent, the moral policeman, you might say, uh, inside us. And the third is our old friend, the unconscious, which we met in the first uh, podcast in this series. So dealing with these in order, what did Freud say about the ego? I'll just read you a, a pretty short quote. We wish to make the ego the matter of our inquiry, our very own ego. But is that possible? After all, the ego is in its very essence a subject. How can it be made into an object? Well, there is no doubt that it can be. The ego can take itself as an object, can treat itself like other objects, can observe itself, criticise itself, and do heaven knows what with itself. In this, one part of the ego is setting itself over against the rest. So the ego can be split. It splits itself during a number of its functions, temporarily at least. Its parts can come together again afterwards. Freud goes on to say that this is something which, quote, is generally known. And surely it's a part of common sense that we can observe ourselves. So here's this primary moving psychoanalysis, is a kind of self-observation, something that a great many people, if not everybody, can identify as a prominent feature of their mental life of their lived experience. So far, so good. We might think that it's pretty difficult to quibble with this approach. It's something very, very basic and something that in daily life we, we might not question. Now, I do have to say that there are philosophical quibbles, even at this point, at this seemingly safe and innocuous entry point into the inquiry into the human psyche, into the, the structure, uh, 
the anatomy of the human psyche. And we will return to these. But for now, let's uh, go where Freud is leading us. And at this point, uh, Freud does indeed take an interesting turn. He turns away from the matter of self-observation or introspection to the observation of others, in fact to the observation of patients. The concern of the discourse moves away from the normal, inverted commas, to the pathological. Freud gives us a reason for making this move. This is what he says, quote, We are familiar with the notion that pathology, by making things larger and coarser, can draw our attention to normal conditions which would otherwise have escaped us. Where it points to a breach or a rent, there may normally be an articulation present. If we throw a crystal to the floor, it breaks, but not into haphazard pieces. It comes apart along its lines of cleavage into fragments whose boundaries, though they were invisible, were predetermined by the crystal structure. Mental patients are split and broken structures of the same kind. Even we cannot withhold from them something of the reverential awe which people of the past felt for the insane. They have turned away from external reality, but for that very reason they know more about internal psychical reality and can reveal a number of things to us that would otherwise be inaccessible to us. Freud is actually presupposing quite a lot here. He's presupposing that the study of mental patients and particularly of the study of uh, what they actually say and what they report about their condition, is evidence of perhaps more general structures, more perhaps even universal structures of the human psyche. Again, we can treat all this as unproblematic, and I think we're going to need to, to press on. But I should say that uh, these manoeuvres on Freud's part do open up a a labyrinth of philosophical questioning um, which have been explored, I would say, in the area of the philosophy of science but also uh, just the whole philosophy of the human being as well as posing questions about the status of the kind of knowledge if it is indeed knowledge, which Freud is claiming can be gained through this style of investigation. Freud goes on to single out a, a feature, a particular feature of the a kind of reportage that he's uh, taking to be significant. And he talks about a group of patients uh, who suffer from delusions of being observed. Uh, they, they claim they're being watched perpetually, which is a very common thing or being surveilled, and these days it's, it's common for people to think they're being spied on by uh, satellites or they've been injected with nanobots which are sending messages to Microsoft or, or the CIA or some kind of nonsense like that. But it's, it's very, very common in, in people whose mental health has uh, broken down uh, to, to have these 
hallucinations of being watched or observed. And sometimes this can take the form of an inner voice. I mean, Freud gives an example here. He says, hallucinations in which the patients hear persons reporting the outcome of their observation. For instance, saying, now he's going to say this, now he's dressing to go out, and so on. Freud notes that this isn't quite yet paranoia, delusions of persecution. But uh, it's on its way. This line of analysis is leading to the, the concept of, of the superego as a kind of internal policeman or conscience, just to use the very common word. Uh, I'll just quote Freud here again. How would it be, I quote, if these insane people were right, if in each of us there is present in his ego an agency like this which observes and threatens to punish and which in them has merely become sharply divided from their ego and mistakenly displaced into external uh, reality. Freud decides to run with this idea of a separate entity to the ego, closely related to it but separate from it, which he calls the superego. And a part of the superego's super job is to act as conscience. And in order to act as conscience, it must have some watching ability or surveillance ability over the ego. In some conditions, and Freud mentions and describes melancholia at this point, this superego representing morality can be very severe on the ego, very cruel, very punishing, and can produce uh, quite a bit of misery in the process. At this point, Freud takes issue with Kant's assertion that conscience, superego, is God-given, that it's the voice of God in man, that it's divine in origin and divine in its work. Freud notes that uh, conscience isn't present in uh, young children. Uh, they are an anarchic and amoral. In this passage, Freud also remarks on the, the sexuality of uh, young children, which uh, in adults uh, can be a source of guilt, of conscience, uh, but in young children certainly isn't. Freud also notes that a lot of people don't have very much conscience, and he, he remarks that, well, if, if this is God's work, it's a bit uneven because some people hardly have any of it, and others are absolutely tormented by it. This, I think, is an extremely important point, that conscience and all the imperatives to behave according to social mores and customs and the shared beliefs of a community arrive in the adult human being through a process this in turn raises the, the question of the importance of child-rearing practices for the way in which societies function and educational practices uh, for the, the way in which societies function. And if we feel pessimistic about the possibilities of ever uh, changing society, of ever overcoming the resistance of populations to social change that could very, very well be life-enhancing and emancipatory, 
for the population of that particular society. Then we need look no further than the insight that conscience isn't God-given, isn't set in stone, isn't something that can never be challenged, but rather but something that's formed through social processes. And that means it can be formed in different ways through social processes. That means it can be challenged, that we don't have to see it as set in stone unquestionable because of its divine provenance. So Freud here hits upon a highly emancipatory insight. I should say that uh, th this picture of, of conscience is sketched out in, in Nietzsche's essay uh, on bad conscience in the 1886 work on the genealogy of morals. Very, very interesting. Short, pretty straightforward to read. But it gives us a, a broad brush picture of this whole game and suggests its political significance. Freud does indeed uh, single out uh, parental practices, uh, particularly those which take the form of reward, i.e. the offering of love and punishment, maybe the, the withholding of love, as being pretty predominant modes of parenting. And how this gets taken over and internalised into the superego. He notes that particularly it's the punitive aspect rather than the rewarding aspect which gets incorporated into the superego. Freud then points out that this process of formation of the superego is actually in its detail pretty complicated and probably not f fully understood. Freud notes a paradox here. And it is that uh, people who've had very mild and uh, non-punitive uh, upbringings very often have the most severe superego, the most severe and punishing conscience. And later on in the essay, he does have a stab at explaining that uh, paradox. Despite admitting that the, there is a certain obscurity around the way in which the superego is formed and introduced into the personality of a human individual. Freud does talk about the successful creation of a superego as something which occurs when the Oedipus complex has been resolved. I think this is Freud at his most speculative perhaps, even though he would claim that the evidence of long experience of psychoanalysis, of interpreting the dreams and stream of consciousness, patience, is compelling enough. I suppose I should say something about the Oedipus complex. Though in this essay, Freud assumes that we know what his thinking is on that matter. So, what is the Oedipus complex supposed to be? Freud noted a homology or a parallel between the reports of his patients and a story told by the, the Greek playwright Sophocles in his play Oedipus Rex. Sophocles actually wrote three pl plays uh, in which the character Oedipus is a, 
uh, a main character. But in, in Oedipus Rex, the, the story goes that Oedipus uh, unwittingly uh, kills his own father and marries his own mother. And upon discovering quite what he's done, he gouges out his own eyes. Just to pile up the tragedy, Sophocles has Oedipus's mother, Jocasta, commit suicide towards the end of the play. Incidentally, uh, the play was premiered in 429 BC at the Theatre of Dionysus in Athens. So Freud, a man uh, very well educated, uh, in quite a rounded way, knowledgeable of the classics, was noticing or inferring uh, from the reports of his patients in his psychoanalytic work, in his therapeutic work, that something like the Oedipus story was pretty prevalent in the life of uh, young children around the age of three, four, five, obviously male children. And Freud came to think that uh, little boys uh, uh, want to possess their mothers sexually and kill their fathers, who, who they perceive as rivals to their mother's uh, love and approval. Obviously, most of us who are brought up in nuclear families don't end up killing our fathers or uh, having incestuous relationships with our mothers. Uh, Freud thought that this complex resolved itself, at least in an ideal situation, and that the male child comes to accept that he can't actually go through with the full Oedipal scenario and accepts the authority of the father and is initiated into the order of the patriarchy through a kind of submission or surrender which Freud saw as a symbolic castration, a giving up of uh, that infantile sexuality which in time hopefully would be replaced by a mature sexuality in which the male son would find his own mating partner and would take his place at the same time within the patriarchal order as a father in his own turn and as a a member of the the gang of men you might call it or the society of men a quick remark on the symbolic castration through which the the young male uh, accepts the authority of the fathers and the the order of the fathers, the patriarchal order. Uh, in the Oedipus myth, this would be the gouging out of the eyeballs. Uh, once the guilt has, has come to fruition for the terrible crimes of parricide and incest. Now, you're probably asking, what about women? What about girl children? What's the scenario there? And Freud did elaborate a scenario along similar lines. He talked about a negative Oedipus complex or a 
Oedipal attitude on the part of uh, young females, which entails uh, girl children being in competition with their mothers for the sexual possession of their fathers. It was actually C.G. Jung who uh, talked about the Electra complex uh, in women and girl children. Again, drawing on Greek drama, in this case the the play, again by Sophocles, called Electra, which tells the story of Electra who did in fact murder her own mother. Jung and Freud had a disagreement over this, since calling the, uh, the situation the Electra complex, uh, which Jung did, uh, seemed to suggest that there was a kind of symmetry between uh, the sexual development and the the ego development and the super ego ego development of uh, boys and girls. And Freud wanted to say that the, the scenario was substantively different. In fact, the uh, the scenario that Freud puts forward is that between the ages of three and six. Uh, children become aware of their bodies and also they're aware of the bodies of other children. And therefore girl children realise that they are already castrated is one way of putting it. And that out of this develops penis envy. Up until this point, the, the girl child is supposed to be attached to the mother and opposed to the father. But once they realise they have the same gender identity as their mothers that they then transfer that sexual interest to their fathers again it's a story uh, that can appear pretty far-fetched even though at the same time we all know people who are stuck to their mothers or stuck to their fathers you might say or fixated to use the psychoanalytic terminology these issues have been taken up and debated in minute detail and analysed and elaborated by psychoanalysts and neo-psychoanalysts but also by feminists who uh, are often worried about Freud in the suggestion that biology is destiny that this story the about the Oedipus complex and the Electra complex and the differences between them seems to imply so there's a lots of ins and outs uh, on this part of the story. Uh, I say none of this is particularly elaborated in the uh, the essay that we're, we're looking at, other than Freud mentioning the Oedipus complex as, as being a part of the very complex unfolding of the formation of the superego. I think this does seem like a pretty fanciful story, but I think the evidence uh, of literature and the evidence of therapeutic reports and the evidence of a kind of shared common sense indicates that there is there is something in this. Maybe Freud goes too far, generalises too much. In my honest imagination, this story is not without content, but it isn't a necessary given either. I mean, after all, what would we expect to transpire outside of middle-class, bourgeois, patriarchal families? Uh, maybe in societies which had child-rearing patterns 
in which all the young children were brought up by the teenagers in the uh, the children's hut or in something like a commune or a kibbutz or an orphanage and so on or in the of course in the single parent family which is fairly common in modern times there's a whole lot of other scenarios could happen there is not one child rearing pattern possible and Freud does do this he tends to universalize from the case of the Viennese bourgeois patriarchal family into some kind of universality and I think we have to be careful there at the same time I do want to say that there is something in this and it seems certainly true that that boys are initiated into the society of men in some way but that involves giving up a certain autonomy a certain uh, pure egotism a certain narcissism which is that of the uh, the the young child say under the age of three and there are many symbolic instances of this uh, I did mention literature I mean what always springs to mind is uh, D.H. Lawrence's masterwork uh, Sons and Lovers which really is a story about the Oedipal complex of well Lawrence himself and his relationship to his own father and his uh, his love for his own mother and you could say that Lawrence perhaps didn't resolve his Oedipal complex and it's a very interesting um, work uh, quite detailed on the psychological level which is it's kind of worth a read and it's very interesting that it applies to a working class family his father was a minor uh, but Lawrence himself did a kind of a class transition and became a, a teacher and had a tertiary education and eventually became a renowned novelist, poet, artist, uh, etc. Let's return then to our tripartite model and just remind ourselves of where we've got to. The inculcation of conscience is achieved through the resolution of the Oedipal complex, at least in male individuals raised in typical bourgeois patriarchal family situations. The, the job of the superego is to act as a kind of conscience, one of its jobs, and also to internalise uh, social mores and uh, the, the policing activity of society, which it engages in in order to control and maintain order and therefore to maintain an economy. Superego also works to provide a degree of conformity. Again, something which is highly desirable from the point of view of the hegemon for maintaining social stability and the control of the hegemon over its society. We know that societies uh, maintain control and perform their policing activities uh, through both coercion and control. We know that societies threaten to punish individuals who don't conform, who break the laws, or even just simply go against the, the mores and the customs of, of particular groups or social classes. But how much better from the point of view of the hegemon and the hegemon's interests to have the 
citizen punish himself when he transgresses, internally with guilt, and the depression or melancholia that ensues when the superego is very, very, very punitive towards the long-suffering ego. Freud has it that there is another function of superego, closely related to everything we've said so far, and that function is to hold up the ideal for the ego, to say this is what a perfect person looks like and this is what you must strive towards. And if you fail, again, again, you will be punished and you'll be punished internally. In yet another nuance, Freud observes that parents in parenting their children, bring their own superego to bear. And in a sense, it's the superego of the parents that educates, disciplines the, the children, their children, in order to introduce into them a superego. And of course, they in their turn were subjected to this process. So superegos are, are acting to create traditions over generations. And this shows the conservative impetus of superego formation and the role of the superego. It has a very conservative role, a socially conservative role to play in human life. Let's turn now to the third province of the psyche that Freud outlines in the lecture, the dissection of the psychical personality. Freud calls this third part the id. The id is the anarchist within. Over and against, you might say, the, the policeman within, which is the superego. Uh, id and unconscious are roughly synonymous, but there is a, a, a subtle difference. Freud explains why he introduced a new terminology. And the id really designates the, the, the sort of deeper more consistently unconscious parts of, of the psyche. And uh, it distinguishes this somewhat from the unconscious in general because there are parts of the, the ego which, which dip in and out of consciousness. The ego, in a sense, has roots down into the unconscious. Similarly, the superego, part of it is, is submerged some of the time. And to get a sense of that distinction, Freud uh, introduces this new terminology. The term id was introduced into English by Freud's translators. Freud actually used the German term das es, the it, which had already been employed in pretty similar usages by Nietzsche and uh, George Grodeck. It's probably best at this point to let Freud speak for himself and tell us what the id entails. So here's a quote. It is the dark, inaccessible part of our personality. What little we know of it we have learnt from our study of the dream work and of the construction of neurotic symptoms. And most of that is of a negative character and can be described only as a contrast to the ego. We approach the id with an analogies. We call it a chaos, 
a cauldron full of seething excitations. We picture it as being open at its end to somatic influences and as there taking up into itself instinctual needs which find their physical expression in it. But we cannot say in what substratum. It is filled with energy reaching it from the instincts. But it has no organisation, produces no collective will. But only a striving to bring about the satisfaction of the instinctual needs subject to the observance of the pleasure principle. It's pretty obvious that the sex drive, the drive for sexual satisfaction is uh, playing a very large part in this scenario, even though uh, obviously there are, there are other pleasures and there is a, perhaps a kind of a pleasure-seeking in general that goes on with human beings. There, there are many arguments about <laughs> quite... Uh, what the nature of these these drives are, but certainly the case of the the drive to sexual satisfaction is figuring pretty large in this description. Now the next part uh, in this description of the id, which follows straight on from what we've just read, I think is very very important, and uh, it's kind of pertinent to our attempts to uh, look for a, a pathology of fascism. Quote, the logical laws of thought do not apply in the id, and this is true above all of the law of contradiction. Contrary impulses exist side by side without cancelling each other out or diminishing each other. At the most they may converge to form compromises under the dominating economic pressure towards the discharge of energy. There is nothing in the id that can be compared with negation. And we perceive with surprise an exception to the philosophical theorem that space and time are necessarily forms of our mental acts. End quote. So it's clear from this that the, the id uh, really is uh, irrational. The law of contradiction doesn't apply here. Contradictions are tolerated. Similarly, time and space don't exist here. And Freud does give us a little insight into what he means about this. And he notes that the, a drive or a memory or a, a trauma might be saved up, you might say, in, in, the, in the id. And when it manifests itself, it will be as fresh as if it was yesterday. It never fades. Time has no meaning. Not only that, but the id is, as I said, anarchic, but particularly anarchic with respect to morality and notions of good and evil, good and bad. I'll quote what Freud says about that. The id, of course, knows no judgment of value, no good and evil, no morality. The economic, or if you prefer, the quantitative factor, which is intimately linked to the pleasure principle, dominates all of its processes. End quote. So it's, it's pleasure at, at all costs. doesn't matter if it's moral, doesn't matter if it's immoral. There's this one imperative for a drive to satisfy itself. 
What are we to make of this? And I would say that any reasonably self-aware person, anybody who's engaged in any kind of self-inquiry, will recognise the, the, the truth of the matter, that we do have this anarchist within us, that our drives do press on us for satisfaction and with quite a, a considerable amount of force and energy. And probably most people can recognise the what Freud calls the, uh, the the absence of time in, in the id. If we've ever had anything kind of traumatic happen to us, and how slow these things are to, to fade. Freud's explanation is, is borne out by the, the persistence uh, uh, of PTSD, for instance, and the consequent difficulties in finding really good treatments for it. The absence of logic and the absence of morality are, again, I would say for anybody reasonably self-aware who's done any kind of self-inquiry would be alert to. So I think we've got quite a good description here of some aspect of human life and a very crucial aspect. The next question is, how do these uh, three provinces of the psyche interact. And Freud describes this in the, the last part of the essay. Given the disparate nature of our, our three provinces, it's pretty obvious that uh, the relationship between the various parts, the relationships between the various parts are, are quite fraught. Again, it's probably better to let Freud speak for himself. Quote, We are warned by a proverb against serving two masters at the same time. The poor ego has things even worse. It serves three severe masters and does what it can to bring their claims and demands into harmony with one another. These claims are always divergent and often seem incompatible. No wonder that the ego so often fails in its task. Its three tyr tyrannical masters are the external world, the superego and the id. When we follow the ego's efforts to satisfy them simultaneously, or rather to obey them simultaneously, we cannot feel any regret at having personified this ego and having set it up as a separate organism. It feels hemmed in on three sides, threatened by three kinds of danger, to which if it is hard-pressed, it reacts by generating anxiety. I'll tell a story to illustrate this point. Imagine a chap called Dave. He's a regular chap, young, middle-aged, lives in a house with his girlfriend, got a nice job. He's reasonably happy, kind of fella, reasonably normal. It comes to Dave's attention one day that the, the neighbour... Is a very attractive woman, and she's made it pretty clear to him that she's up for a sexual dalliance. She's very, very attractive. Dave fancies her like hell. However, the the, the moment he feels that attraction, he's already feeling guilty because he doesn't want to betray his girlfriend. Neither does he want to betray the the woman's husband, who is Dave's best friend. So superego kicks in. Dave has been inculcated with a, a degree of sexual morality uh, within 
his family during his upbringing and through the education system and the general milieu. He's capable of feeling guilt. This conflict between the urge to sexual satisfaction and pleasure on the one hand and uh, the demands of conscience on the other hand is complicated by the fact that Dave knows full well that the uh, the woman's husband is a karate expert. Every morning he gets up at 5am and punches the wall for two hours. It's very powerful and he's got a bit of a short fuse and Dave's very friendly with the guy. He's got a lot of, lot of respect and uh, and love for him but he's also aware that the guy's dangerous so reality is pressing in as well it's the third part of the conflict reality pressing in well if you do succumb to the the urge to have a dalliance with the, the woman you might get your skull fractured in the process so it's reality conscience and instinct all in this uh, wonderful tension and conflict when you look at it like this you can see that Freud's topographical model has a certain descriptive power at the very least it might give us a vocabulary with which to talk about these very prominent features of human life it may even to some limited extent give us a certain amount of predictive ability regarding people's psychic states and it's when you elaborate a story like this and it's stories like this do form the, the stuff of fiction that you realize that Freud's description isn't isn't half bad we do need to ask what kind of a thing it is it's not exactly a map it's perhaps it's a bit like uh, the, the maps of, of the ancients where you'd get uh, some little bits of known coastline drawn on the map, probably reasonably accurate, but it's over there on the west somewhere it says here be dragons. Or there's some fanciful continent that, that really is only half a semblance to what really is going on over there because it's elaborated out of the reports of uh, a few rare travellers who might have happened upon these distant places there's a certain kind of remove between the map and, and the territory at the same time it's it's good enough to, to have a certain recognizability i'll put it like that we, we have a certain recognition i think some of freud's elaborations might be fanciful the question to ask it seems to me here is well how useful is it and how useful is, is it for our particular task which is you know, ultimately to elucidate the the play of the irrational in our modern politics, perhaps you might say, and in our modern culture. It's interesting that juggling the imperatives of the three provinces of the psyche is, is pretty difficult, probably impossible with any sort of consistency. We're all going to screw up in this respect at some time in our lives. This, of course, happens the possibility of, of anxiety and a crippling degree of anxiety, of course, can, can cause us to become unable to function in society. We can't handle the reality principle. 
and insufficient resistance to the imperatives of the id might mean that it overwhelms us, which of course is what psychosis is, is that this irrational territory becomes the whole of our lives. At the same time, this is where the energy of life is. It's coming. It's in the id and it's coming up from the id. If you could completely suppress it, you'd, you'd be pretty dead. Think of how much art uh, derives from the inspiration that bubbles up out of our unconscious, how much it derives its beauty from the, the insanity of the, the unconscious and the irrationality of the unconscious. It, it certainly has its place. And of course, we're not going to do away with it. It's part of our functioning as human beings. So the, the task of ego is a pretty kind of tricky one. For spiritual people, spiritual in inverted commas, there's an added complication at this point. Like art, spirituality entails having some sort of relationship with the, the id. It derives its vitality from the id. In some senses it becomes a kind of an exploration of the id, and certainly in some articulations. Uh, Jung noted that the so-called kundalini yoga is a voluntary psychosis, in other words, and allowing oneself to be submerged by the id, by all the irrational impulses of the id, by the irrationality itself. If you understand this, it's little wonder that certain elements of the New Age movement and the yoga movement, the modern yoga movements, fall prey to irrationalism and therefore to the right, because the right is ever willing to exploit irrationalism. And hence the phenomenon of the cosmic right. I don't think it's going too far to describe some of the science denialism and, and its mobilisation on the streets uh, is a collective psychosis. Another pathological possibility of this uh, tripartite uh, tension is that guilt from the superego, the punitive work of the superego can be so over the top, so intense that it produces melancholia or very, very deep depression, which might then slip over into mania as the, as the superego kind of subsides in its activity. Freud finishes the lecture by utilising the, the vocabulary that is developed here by attempting to elucidate what psychoanalysis actually does. And he basically says that its job is to strengthen the ego against uh, the pressures both of the superego and the id. You might say to give it better purchase on reality, external reality, with the consequent increase in effective agency. And for it to extend itself also in, into the id, in other words, to understand through experience, through analysis, through dream analysis, through self-knowledge of a kind, elements of the id.
In other words, it's a project of making the unconscious conscious. Obviously not all at once, but uh, in a sort of piecemeal manner. He notes, interestingly, that mysticism attempts the same thing, attempts to extend consciousness into the id so as to pick up details of it, to understand it, to, to arrive at some kind of self-understanding. But he, Freud says on, I will quote it, that it may safely be doubted, however, whether this road, the road of mysticism, will lead us to the ultimate truths from which salvation is to be expected. He's not very sympathetic then to the claim that there's some kind of deep hidden truth right deep down there in the centre of our head that we can dive in and retrieve. However, he does admit that some degree of knowledge of our inner workings might be derived through mystical methods. I presume he's talking about meditation and maybe sort of meditative prayer. So he, he wants to distinguish psychoanalysis from that claim to self-knowledge. This is what he says. It may be admitted that the therapeutic efforts of psychoanalysis have chosen a similar line of approach. Its intention is indeed to strengthen the ego, to make it more independent of the superego, to widen its field of perception and to enlarge its organisation so that it can appropriate fresh portions of the id. Where id was, the ego shall be. It is a work of culture, not unlike the draining of the Zyder Z. End quote. This is perhaps a little bit more exegetical than, than I'd originally intended. But even the, the quotes that I've given are really no substitute for reading the paper. And I think as an introduction to Freud, mature Freud, it's it's worth a read. Particularly if you haven't got a chance to read the long works, which do demand quite a bit of effort. I'm referring to the, the originary texts, like the interpretation of dreams or the psychopathology of everyday life. This one, I say, it's, you can read it in an afternoon. It's clearly written. And hopefully what I've done here would help you to read it. Uh, should you desire to. Uh, what I want to take from it is is the general point that we are not masters in our own house. There's not just a simple centre of will, just a simple, timeless, painless, uh, simple uh, point of consciousness, consciousness, the ego within us that we are intrinsically uh, con conflicted and that whether you buy Freud's more fanciful accounts or not there is a kind of simple truth in, in that and we can also certainly recognise that we do have an irrational id that we do have somehow some kind of conscience or some kind of inner policing uh, f faculty which does the work of internalising to some degree society's mores and imperatives and moralities and at the same time we have to deal with reality, external reality with the 
all the things that the world and our communities in which we're embedded demand of us. Further, Freud leaves us in no doubt of the importance of child-rearing practices and educational practices for the future. And again, these aren't simple processes that produce adult citizens in a, a straightforward way. As I say, I'm going to subject this way of doing things to some further scrutiny. But at this point, I want to say we've got something relatively useful. Well, I hope you enjoyed it above all, and my knowledge is great again. I hope you're having a good apocalypse, everybody. And watch this space, because we've got loads of things on the anvil. Over and out.